that's one thing the listeners might miss is caves are usually thought of as low visibility, can't see anything, small, have to fight my way through. Whereas some of the rooms we've discovered are stadium size and much of the tunnel we travel through is larger than subway passage size. Moving through a subway passage tunnel into stadium sized rooms that are decorated and beautiful with crystal clear water in many cases is, is truly a breathtaking kind of experience. This is The Metal Set. Hi, this is Dawn, an ultra cyclist and sports PR specialist. And I'm Afshan, an endurance athlete and journalist. And we're on a quest to bring you stories of tenacity, courage, and metal. From athletes in the Middle East and beyond. Unless you've been living under a rock or in a cave, you've likely heard of the world's deepest pool, Deep Dive Dubai. But dive just a little deeper and you'll find a team of champions, explorers, and world record breakers. Our guest today, Jared Jablonski, is ahead of that team. I first met Jared when I was fortunate enough to work on the launch of Deep Dive Dubai last year. Along with being the director of what I can safely describe as a marvel, Jared is an accomplished explorer, a published author, a world record-breaking cave diver, and a pioneer in dive safety. When we launched the podcast, I said we absolutely need to get him on to talk as a guest about this adventure sport. Along with chatting about Deep Dive Dubai and revealing who the best celebrity diver is, Jared talks us through his 30-year career in dive education and setting up the non-profit Global Underwater Explorers to address diver safety and aquatic conservation. We also chat through how he set a world record for the longest cave dive, a 90-meter dive spanning 18 kilometers that saw him underwater for 30 hours. You heard that correct. We also chat through his world record for the longest cave traverse, 11 kilometers, also at 90 kilometers, and why cave diving is a spiritual experience for him. And that's not all. Our discussion with Jared takes us through the very beginning of his foray into diving and how his passion took the direction of elevating the standards in the sports and how his own experience informed it. We also spoke about some of the most adventurous dives and how someone like me, who doesn't know how to swim, can even consider getting into it. This chat highlighted the power of curiosity and made us appreciate the spirit of exploration. Let's dive into it. Jared, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's truly a pleasure to be here, and congratulations to you on the successful launch. Thank it's you. Exciting. Thank Appreciate you. Appreciate it. Thanks. So, not an underreported story by any means. You are the director of Deep Dive Dubai, the world's deepest pool at 60 meters. But today, and I apologize in advance because it's going to be puns everywhere. We're going to take a deep dive. <laughs> uh, didn't take you long. It uh, didn't take me long. <laughs> into your background and some of the exceptional things that you've accomplished in your career as an individual and also contributing to diving and the sport of diving. You're a world record-breaking cave diver. And we want to talk about how you've given back to the sport and also really how you've elevated the standards for dive safety and for people. Well, at least I've tried. Yeah. So hopefully <laughs> I've been somewhat successful. I'm going to tell you something about myself. I can't swim to save myself. We right? can fix that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but just thinking about you spending over 30 hours underwater just mm -hmm. gives me palpitations, right? It's thinking about it or listening to you talk about it. But it also fascinates me. 
So what I'd like to know is, what was your most memorable drive? Does it fascinate you in like serial killer kind of way? Or? <laughs> it just fascinates me as to how much you can extend your limits uh, underwater. And I can't uh, yet. <laughs> yes, you could. And, and we can work on that with you. Yeah. It's really hard to answer a question like most memorable dive. And I get that question a lot. Mm. Personally, I just love to be underwater. Okay. I mean, I was swimming before I could walk. You know, I think my mom was maybe trying to get rid of me, but I was <laughs> more resistant. So I'm here. But I really love anything to do with water activity, and I love athletics of all sorts. And so all the different environments for me are just different benefits. I love many different wrecks that I could talk about. There's a 500-year-old shipwreck that we dive in the Baltic Sea where the cannons and cannonballs are still in place. There's still gold coins you know, littered on the wreck. Wow. So that gets fascinating. In the Mediterranean, yeah. we've discovered many amphora, even a 3000 BC sacrificial altar. You know, and so ships wow. like that are fascinating to see. And then with caves, there are so many different caves and it's such a different environment that mm. you're not dealing with human history, whereas the previous examples were human history based. Right. Here you're dealing with something geologic in nature. Mm. So the, the bedrock that forms the cave would have been created 40, 50 million years beforehand when it was an ancient coral reef. And now it's a area dry and filled with fresh water. Wow. And you're diving through this ancient coral reef and tunnels that have been carved over thousands of years and seeing ancient fossils and beautiful formations. So there are too many to count. And I, and I love everything from the most basic recreational three meter dive to 250 meter dive on a wreck. So, so then my next question would be how many have you done in your like, do you know, or is it just too many to count? Yeah, I've now? unfortunately not kept a really good log you know at some you point you don't have a big board up <laughs> i started you know and then it just One, two, why bother two. and i think especially when you start teaching you you start right. to lose mm -hmm. that because that's the first sacrifice you're like well you know i'm in the water all day diving today and so am i going to log those dives no mm -hmm. and then you get out of the habit so i'd like conservatively in you know, north of 10,000 i'm i'm oh, confident wow. so i've been, wow, wow, wow. been diving a lot of years so <laughs> right. so We'll go into some of the explorations that you have done, and you talk quite a lot about being an explorer, but taking, I guess, a few steps back, mm -hmm. you mentioned your mother being an inspiration for you, and I guess the passion for you diving and moving into, I guess, really a lifelong passion for you was actually ignited before you were even born. Is that right? Theoretically. <laughs> well, I mean, I was in my mother's womb swimming around, I, yeah. I suppose. <laughs> I, I wondered to myself whether that early swimming experience is what helped to solidify my passion or mm -hmm. created it even. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, obviously, I can't really tell. Mm -hmm. I love athletic, active things. So I'm happy to do everything from mountain climbing to bicycle riding to running. And diving was just a really cool nexus of my love and affinity for the aquatic environment together with an active orientation, mm -hmm. because I also love free diving as well as scuba diving. So I'm, you know, I don't pick a favorite particularly, but scuba diving for a collection of reasons has just been something I've done with great passion and enthusiasm over many decades now. Yeah. And you took up diving in college, is that correct? Uh, actually, in high school, before, right before going to college, with your so I was, uh, was about with fifteen, your exactly, with my father. Very good. We learned together. Yeah. He didn't continue, but that was good for <laughs> yeah. me because when I went off to college, I took his gear and mine, right. and I had That's a cave nice. diving set right away because I had redundancy uh, in the equipment. Right. And do you remember what the first dive was then? I do. I do. I remember even snapshots of learning to dive. Okay. I was really comfortable in the water. I was swimming competitively even at the time, so okay. you know, water wasn't the least bit anxiety provoking for me, and I was with a group of older adults, my father and his friends, who had you know, much less comfortable in the water. 
So for me, it was always just natural. I was, wow, I can breathe here, you know, <laughs> swimming all this time. And now I can actually just take multiple breaths while staying underwater. So it was pretty magical for me. And I do remember the first dives in Florida where I learned how to dive and diving off the coast and, and getting down into the deeper water and, and really just getting into a completely different world. And that's what I love so much about diving in general. Cave diving is a lot like that as well because mm -hmm. you're so isolated from everything. You almost feel like you're on the moon, yeah, you know, yeah. like you're a space explorer. Right. You're, there's nothing around. Yeah. And the nice aspect of cave exploration is that you're also in places that no human being has ever been, mm. which is really fascinating for me. And you went to University of Florida and we were listening to a mm. podcast <laughs> and you had mentioned, I'm not going to get this correct, so you'll have to correct me on it. But University of Florida, I think there was a, a card or a certification you got mm. with diving yeah. There. Did you study diving? Like, did they offer diving as a course? Because I'm <laughs> like, this is fascinating. <laughs> the easiest college class. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, we did actually. And the University of Florida became, during the time I was there, the largest program in the nation. We were sort of thing about 2,000 students a year mm -hmm. who could get some college credit for the class. So, there was incentive for them to take the class. And it was nice for us because we're dealing with pretty capable, reasonably intelligent, reasonably athletic people in training. And they could get credits as well as certification. And we offered several nationally recognized programs like Patty, Nowy, some of the, the large uh, training agencies. But we also gave a, a University of Florida academic, academic diving program card that we created ourselves as part of the course curriculum. And that card actually became, and this I think where you're going, that yep. card actually became uh, more valued than the national cards among the local boat operators because they started to see that the training we were offering created such a better diver that they didn't have any problems with those divers. And unfortunately, diver distress accidents or at least panicky events and stress in the water can mm -hmm. be a relatively common occurrence for a daily operator who's seeing hundreds of people on a regular basis. Right. So you went from studying it to teaching it. I actually took a open water class with my girlfriend at the time who wanted to get certified. And I was already certified, but I just said, oh, I'll join this and got in. And then the people there could see I was qualified and, and comfortable. So they put me in an advanced class immediately. And within actually weeks, I was already working on my instructor rating. They said, well, you know, why don't you learn how to teach? So I learned how to be an instructor at the university. And then it became one of my several jobs for college. I was like, what better? I get to work and scuba dive, <laughs> make some money, offset Sounds my good. tuition. <laughs> yeah. So I guess in 1998... You founded Global Underwater Explorers, GUE. Yes. A scuba dive organization mm -hmm. that provides education across recreational, technical, and cave diving. Talk us through what that organization is and what the catalyst was for creating that. Was it that far after university? What happened? To A few years after graduating from the university. And there were several motivating factors. You know, one... I was already working with a local group. I was on the board and part and one of the explorers for a local organization that was exploring the Florida caves. Mm -hmm. And I was really interested in developing a nonprofit global approach, really was inspired by Jacques Cousteau's work and the, and the travel and, and work that he did in the decades previously. And I wanted to create an international version that really appealed to the different communities at the same time. So mm -hmm. not just one small group of people going everywhere, but communities of people advocating for the benefit of their local resources. And so I was already thinking about a nonprofit conservation exploration group. And at the same time, I was just seeing a significant number of problems 
especially in the technical community. To mm -hmm. some extent, I was seeing a, a lot of discomfort, stressed, panicky divers in the open water community. Not so many fatalities, but unfortunately there are some. But in technical diving, I was starting to see a growing number of fatalities that were occurring for totally avoidable reasons, which mm -hmm. was really frustrating for Can me. Can you talk us through some of those avoidable reasons? Absolutely. So there are several things that technical divers need to pay particular attention to. They first need a good basis of skill. You know, if you're a skier, you need to be able to stay on your skis and you shouldn't start skiing black diamond until you're pretty comfortable. People were moving really way too quickly before they had a good foundation. And that was kind of built into the curriculums of the time because they were organized around trying to keep people um, moving quickly and developing their capacity and moving through the chain and being accessible to everyone available. So that's already existing somewhat in the recreational realm. But with technical divers, those weaknesses are even more problematic because if you're not really stable in the water and really comfortable, then when a problem occurs, you're not at all in a mental or practical space to deal with it. So that's one aspect to the stress that accumulates if problems like bad visibility or strong currents or buddy separation, okay. things like this develop. And then you also have issues with cave diving. You have to follow guidelines that are either pre-established or that you establish so that you can easily find the way out. So it's a physical guideline. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, like a line, a nylon yeah. rope mm -hmm. that's quite strong actually as well. It's not meant to pull on, but it could be. It's yep. not brittle right. either. And you would follow that line and caves can be complicated. So there's the need to connect different lines from different tunnels. And there's some logistics I won't bear out in great degree, but not running that line or jumping from one of those lines to another line without making it continuous or placing the proper markers can result in becoming lost or mm -hmm. confused about the exit direction. Totally preventable. All you have to do is invest 30 seconds to stringing the line and marking it properly. And so people would die from not taking those basic precautions or because their basic skills were so poor that they created bad visibility mm -hmm. by bad position, bad kicking style, uh, this kind of thing. And then in technical diving, we breathe different gas mixtures because of the I don't know how long we want to go into this, but to make it simple, as you dive deeper, you need to remove nitrogen and add helium. Mm -hmm. okay. And that's, that new gas, helium, that's coming into your tissues needs to be removed. And a way to remove it more quickly is you, as you start to ascend, you breathe mixtures with higher oxygen levels right. as you get closer and closer to the surface. And that can mean you might breathe three, four, five, six. My longest dive, I think there were you know, half a dozen different gas mixtures that you have to breathe at different depths. Breathing the wrong one at the wrong depth can be fatal because you can get into a toxic seizure, epileptic-like, which is not deadly at all if you're on the surface. Yeah. But if you have a seizure underwater, then you drown. And yeah. all of this just required changing or tweaking the way you were teaching divers. Yes. Just a few tweaks here and there. And from my perspective, really tiny tweaks, which is yeah. ultimately was the inspiration for the training part of GUE, the organization. The other sides were more my desire to make a difference in the environment and to educate people. But the training side, we instituted a number of practices. One, we were willing to fail people or more specifically to say, you're not ready yet to mm -hmm. do this on your own. Right it requires more practice. And we call it a provisional rating, which is a common occurrence where, okay, you've got most of it, but not all of it. And so you need to do more training. That was almost unheard of and is almost unheard mm -hmm. of in the diving industry because I paid money to get this card to go mm -hmm. diving. So yeah. you should give it to me, right? Yeah. And this yeah. is like the normal kind of relationship that exists in the diving industry. And so we said, no, if you're not ready, you're not ready. And then we also tweaked a number of aspects to the chronology of training. So the way that we developed people from a base to more advanced skills, 
Then we created a number of very rigid protocols that made it basically impossible to make the kinds of mistakes I'm talking about. So mm -hmm. things like breathing the wrong gas. We mark the bottles with the depth at which you should breathe at that depth or shallower. So we just put the actual depth on the bottle. So I just look at it and I know immediately. Then together with a buddy team that requires us to cross-validate the gas I'm breathing and a procedure by which that's done. So we essentially eliminated some of the most common but totally preventable problems in technical and cave diving. So you were probably making some of these mistakes moving along oh, yeah. and they were informing the regulations that many. you were making. Yeah, many. As my career evolved, I did progressively more aggressive dives through a couple of decades of exploration. Mm -hmm. And in the final range of longest dives were about 30 hours long. Which we will talk about. <laughs> um, but I would say that those were the safest dives that I did in my entire career. Mm -hmm. And the dives that were... <laughs> 30 minutes or an hour long were much more dangerous because I didn't know what I didn't know and yeah. we didn't have those established procedures. And regrettably, I was seeing people die. I've lost half a dozen friends to technical diving over the years. And I was also trying to teach this sport while I was an explorer. So I was having problems and doing things wrong, as you correctly articulate, and nearly dying and saying, wouldn't it have been good if I'd learned this <laughs> yeah. in a no stress or low stress yeah. environment to learn the proper protocols yeah. to avoid this from happening? So I just started to do this with my students. I hadn't even created GV yet, but I started to do this with my own students and saw tremendous benefit. I call stress-oriented training, and we would just do it in a very slow and progressive way, adding additional stress factors to see how people's thinking would evolve and get them thoroughly conditioned to manage problems. You've set multiple world records when it comes to diving and all of this experience has been in you know, parallel to you identifying these gaps. I guess, talk us through your world records like and how they came to be. Did you set out to break records? Like you've done, and correct us if we're wrong, but we've got the world's longest cave dive, 18 kilometers, penetration at 90 meters, and that's 30 hours underwater. Mm -hmm. I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. And then the longest cave traverse 11 kilometers at 90 meters depth as well. It's hard for someone who's not a diver to kind of... Yeah, and sometimes it doesn't <laughs> even make sense. Someone yeah. who isn't a swimmer, it's even more mind-blowing. Yeah. I can tell you that. I, I think progressively, like most things, you know, I mean, you can look at a lot of sports that seem crazy on the front, yeah. but you learn it progressively. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really set out to break records, so to speak. I set out to explore the caves. And mm -hmm. as I started to explore the caves, I got really excited about cave diving and its challenges and the really unique experience of going into places that I was sure nobody had ever been before, mm -hmm. which is so different to almost everywhere else we go on the planet. Yeah. Even a really remote mountain peak, probably somebody's been there. Maybe not, but probably, but we don't know, right? Yeah. In a cave, when you explore it, you're laying the guideline into a cave yeah. and you're many kilometers back into a place that nobody's ever been. And so I got pretty excited about that. And I found it to be a really, you know, not to divulge too much, but almost a spiritual kind of feeling, yeah. you know, to be connected to the earth in this really unique way and experience these magically beautiful environments. So that's one thing the listeners might miss is, you know, caves are usually thought of as low visibility, can't see anything, small, have to fight my way yeah. through. Whereas some of the rooms we've discovered are stadium size and much wow. of the tunnel we travel through is larger than subway passage size. Mm -hmm. 
moving through a subway passage tunnel into stadium-sized rooms that are decorated and beautiful with crystal clear water in many cases is, is truly a breathtaking kind of experience. Yeah, I remember I'd gone to, I think it was Budapest, and I did this caving, but on land above water. And there were like such narrow passages and I was mm. so claustrophobic in there. But there would be an outlet and you would come to a big yeah, exactly. hall or something of that sort. And that would be amazing. Mm. So, yeah, I can totally relate to that, but just above water. I think, <laughs> I think it's that sense of wonder, too. You know, just like we don't really get that in daily life. Absolutely, like, yeah. You know, those magical experiences that you can't even put words to. You mm -hmm. just have to feel them. Which yeah. is one of the things I love about the sport itself. I mean, you really, it's such an unconventional place. Yeah. You know, all the things on the surface we see on a daily basis. And we're not often surprised. But you go underwater and you're wow, that's really cool. That creature just looks like something from outer space. Where did that come from? Or how does that work? And it's just so beautiful and so unique. That... Well, we haven't fully explored the ocean floor yet as humans. <laughs> Not at all. More people have been on the moon than to the bottom of the ocean. So wow. that's funny. And it's theoretically a lot easier to go to the bottom of the ocean. Where were those cave dives that you did? Most of the longest caves were in Florida. So that's right. where I was living and developing at the time. And we just kept going further. So we would set a record and then break our own record. And yeah. and really, as I said, it was just because the cave kept going. And we were working with the state of Florida in mapping these cave systems mm -hmm. toward their ultimate preservation. So we were working with both the state and with a number of nonprofit conservation groups. And the, the benefit to mapping the caves is you can help to direct development in a more appropriate way. Mm -hmm. So everything from like a, a gas station that might have like an in-ground gas tank all the way to large community developments uh, can be organized better if you know where the large conduits are below. So I imagine you put on your geology hat when you're doing these dives. It's not just exploration for you. So uh, I'm, I'm guessing there's an agenda there as well. It, you know, actually I became a geologist after I was a cave diver. So I was in college already and I was really studying almost everything. I'm just a very curious person. So I was my multiple major and I, I got through probably 80% of my four different majors. But geology was a fascination because I started to see that there's a lot of neat things in the world to learn about. And that experience as a geologist, learning all of these systems really helped me to appreciate it all the more, made me a more effective cave diver, as well as helped me in a lot of the conservation-oriented work we do. How do you prepare both physically, because I think that far deep underwater, there's a lot of physical pressure on your body and mentally as well to be underwater for 30 hours for me like I did one of my first dives at deep dive Dubai and just the mental shift I had to be like oh I'm underwater and I'm breathing right. <laughs> but even not going very far you know like 18 meters I could feel the pressure of the water on my body so how do you physically and mentally prepare for for some of these explorations the pressure itself is usually not a big problem on the body especially as you go deeper you know, you're just clearing your ears. So you're actually bringing compressed gas into your sinuses. You know, that creates an inequality and equalizes the pressure mm -hmm. from outside to in. I think the more important physical component is just the length of time. 
mm-hmm. and the amount of work that you might be doing underwater. So to do these very long dives, we have to carry a significant amount of equipment, mm-hmm. particularly going back 20 years when the equipment wasn't as advanced as it is mm-hmm. today. So you're carrying a tremendous amount of equipment over a long distance. When you're 30 hours underwater, you don't get as many breaks. It's harder to eat. It reminds me of triathlon competitions yeah. in, in a way. And what yeah. is this equipment? Multiple tanks. So we need many tanks on the longest dive. We probably had about 30 tanks in the water. Multiple rebreather systems, which are a whole nother conversation, but they're ways in which we recirculate the air that we breathe. So we get much better advantage of what we have available to us. Mm-hmm. So they uh, just allow us to get a lot more time. And then uh, underwater propulsion vehicles, because you wouldn't want to try to swim those kinds of distances. Yeah, yeah. So we carry six of them on that longest of those dives. So fitness has always been a part of my life. So that mm-hmm. was easy. So I would you know, maintain a regular regime of fitness. And I found that the more fit I was, the easier those dives were, as we might expect. Hydration is pretty important mm-hmm. to keep the blood well um, lubricated, so to speak, and make the decompression more efficient. And then mentally, I think you just, if you're really nervous about closed spaces, then you probably, probably shouldn't not. do it. <laughs> Maybe think of another. If you're bothered by an elevator, <laughs> then you probably yeah. shouldn't go in a cave. <laughs> I think I might be out, <laughs> unfortunately. But mentally, like when you start a dive like that, is there something you tell yourself? You know, do you have a mantra or because um, it an is intention? A, yeah, because it is a spiritual experience for you, as you've said. So, you know, it is, how does it? Yeah, especially once you get into it yeah. so on the front end i have you know i have a little bit of a tendency towards ocd so you know everything has to be perfect and yeah. so i spent a lot of energy <laughs> making everything you know as good as i can possibly make it and that's my mantra in the beginning is i just prepare really thoroughly and really well and then once i get in the water and we start into the cave then i just give it the well i've done everything i can you know so let's settle in and try to enjoy the dive And I just focus on the activity itself. So on the front end, it's the preparation. And then during the dive, it's let's just settle in and enjoy. How many people would typically go on one of these? Normally, the lead divers would be two or three at most. Mm -hmm. But on those really long, deep dives, you also have setup teams. Because what we do is ferry equipment at stages at different points. Right. I was going to say, like, if there's a support car. (laughs) More or less, yeah. Yeah. So similar to the way a triathlon is run where you have water stations, we would have emergency uh, depots that would include extra gas, drinking supplies, extra propulsion scooters. So on the longest of the deep dives, you might end up having three teams about nine or 10 people who are also each doing pretty long dives. Mm -hmm. And then you have a whole contingent of support people that would come down and check on the divers during their long decompression. Because the 30-hour dive, for example, 12 hours of that was at 90 meters in the cave, and the rest of it is decompression. So you have to get rid of all that gas that you accumulated over the 12 hours at 90 meters. And so you have to come up really slowly. Staying at some cases at certain stops every three meters, you need to stay two or three hours at that particular spot. So that's very meditative in nature. Yeah, I'm sure. When you're underwater, what kind of wildlife do you see? Like, I mean, it's one of the things I'm from Newfoundland, you know, like North Atlantic and stuff. And I've got a healthy respect for the ocean, but I'm terrified of what's in it. (laughs) Well, caves are would be good for you then. uh, If you're not claustrophobic, there's not a whole lot of life in caves, though there's some really interesting life in there meaning that there are sometimes dozens of species endemic to a particular region of caves where you don't find them anywhere else in the world. There we see crayfish, albino blind crayfish, which are 
smaller and albino versions of the surface crayfish or mm-hmm. a, like a baby lobster for people who aren't familiar with what <laughs> yeah. crayfish look like. They're quite small, you know, about thumb sized. And they're fascinating because they actually can live up to 150 years. They have very low metabolisms. They eat about once a month. They waste very little energy because there's not a lot of resource in the cave. So stuff like that you, mm-hmm. you can learn quite a lot about. And then there's a number of quite small critters that live there. And most of the life is in the beginning part of the cave, which is closer to daylight. I mean, I think this is a good segue to like talk about your mission with ocean protection. I think what is that and where is it going and how does it shape up for you? For me, all of that just became born from my fascination of the underwater environment. I didn't Mm -hmm. start out thinking I need Mm -hmm. to conserve this environment. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know it was under threat, really. And when I first started diving... And then the more passionate I became about exploring caves and ocean environments, the more affinity I developed for them and the more special I began to see them as. And then I started to notice significant changes in these environments in caves and in the ocean. The area in Florida where I'm from, the coral reefs that I learned to dive on, you know, when I was 15 years old, are today nothing like they were. You Mm -hmm. know, they're damaged from so many different sources, and the coral is mostly gone in, in many of them. So it scares me to see the profound changes that occur in only a few decades uh, in the environment. Is a lot of that due to inexperienced divers, like touching the coral? Some of it is, and that's part of our mission and part of the reason that we really spent a lot of energy teaching proficient skills, Mm -hmm. because just not crashing into the reef is a good start already. And we work a lot on very nuanced skills that allow photographers to get close and back up underwater, which is something most people aren't familiar with. And so that's a big part of it. But unfortunately, there's also the broader pollution that occurs, Mm. a variety of nutrients. Nutrient load is one of the biggest problems in both fresh and saltwater environments. Mm -hmm. So this can be from dairy farms or agricultural locations where you have fertilizers or waste from cows, and that gets into the groundwater. And that nutrient load allows a lot of things to grow that shouldn't be in that environment. And so you get a lot of freshwater environments and saltwater environments that get choked out by algae growth. Mm -hmm. And this is now, if I go to South Florida and go diving, when I dive along the reefs that used to be really cool reefs, in addition to being damaged, they're also covered in thick mats of algae because it's really, you know, unchecked growth and development due to the nitrate load or the nutrient load that exists in the water. And what success have you had in kind of alleviating this issue? It's a really difficult problem, and, and yeah. I, would, I wish I could claim a lot of success, but you know these are big pieces yeah. that have been in play for decades, yeah. and it's sort of like you know global warming, mm-hmm. to take an example. Mm-hmm. It isn't something that is quickly resolved. It's yeah. a multi-decade kind of yeah. transition, and there are a lot of things that we've tried to do. For example, in South Florida, one of the things we still do is they still inject primarily treated sewage water into the ocean, so they take out sort of the worst bits of it, but mm-hmm. is still very dense in nutrient load. Mm-hmm. And so that causes all these algae problems that I'm talking about. So we haven't yet been successful getting to the stop, but we've helped to highlight those problems in very mm. dramatic ways through video and through press. Okay. Similarly, in Florida, we've had better traction there. We've been at it longer. So in the spring systems, we've had better luck showing people the impact of these nutrients and had uh, a number of successes. We've had the, the even the state legislature recognize our accomplishments in that regard, okay. helping to shift both development and water treatment and the ways in which we deal with everything from like stormwater, which is the water that accumulates after a rain on hard pavement, 
through to how we manage agricultural overflow. So we've had some pretty great, some really solid successes I'm proud of in those areas. I think awareness is so important too, because you look at the ocean, you can't really see any damage that's happening, right? We don't really know what's- Yeah, the surface, it doesn't look Yeah, it's it's kind of out of sight, out of mind, unfortunately. So the more we talk about it, I think is important as well, because it is a very complex issue, which requires multiple stakeholders, you know, anywhere. And this is one of the things I really try to convince divers they need to be more aware of. They're the ones that see the environment. So they can bring back pictures, video, have conversations like the one that we're having now. And I can't blame people for not prioritizing Mm. something that they don't interact with and Mm. don't know anything about. Mm. This is that evil part of zoos, right? I mean, I should protect things that I don't know and never seen, don't understand. Yes, you should. Do we? Not as well as if we see it and understand it. And that's one of our big efforts is to try to bring these things forward. It strikes me a lot in many countries, but a lot of these beautiful springs we'll go visit We'll go diving in them and find just tons of coins in the water, which ultimately is really bad for the environment for lots of different reasons. Mm. And I know the people, they come there and they marvel at the beauty of the spring and they don't mean anything at all when they flip coins into the water, but they just have no idea, you know, what's going on there. And you go underwater and you see trash and coins and all kinds of problems with these what were pristine environments and are now uh, heavily degraded. So I think our job is just to make people aware and make progress towards the slow movement and improvement. On exploration and your world record-breaking dives, and you've done a lot around Florida, what's next for you like in terms of exploration? Like, Where would you love to go or what's kind of untapped, untouched, unexplored the in the world? Remote, yeah, yeah, cave dives in the There's world. There's quite a lot. So <laughs> one of GUE's main nonprofit endeavors is we do a lot of exploration and work with governments mm-hmm. and okay. uh, research institutions and museums. So we have a ton of ongoing work in many countries, let's say, around the world. A lot of our activity is also in the Mediterranean, Mm -hmm. where we have a really rich partnership with the superintendent of the sea, which are safeguarding all the archaeology and environmental aspects there. And so we're endlessly finding projects there, working on many different wrecks in the area. One of our most vibrant is uh, working with Roman rams. These are these uh, large battering rams they used to put on the front of Roman ships and they would just ram each other. (laughs) Uh, But these are massive, you know, they can be 300 kilograms or more, you know, structures. And there's very few of them around the world. Right. So we've been locating, identifying those, bringing them up, restoring them and and putting them in museums and places that are appropriate. And I I love those activities there. In Italy was also the sacrificial altar area because there's many... Talk us through the sacrificial altar. (laughs) (laughs) Who was sacrificed? What is that that like? How does that work? This is a region where you have uh, sort of between uh, Africa and Sardinia, you have a historical trade where you had ships, you know, canvassing the region in the Mediterranean. And... They would carry goods, often an amphora, which were like ancient versions of Tupperware. Many of you have seen them. They're like tall vases. They're, you know, kind of narrow and tall. And they would have a peg on the bottom of them. And then they would just slot those into a hole in the ship. And they would carry everything from spices to olive oil Mm -hmm. to wine. And of course, these ships would also go down. And experts in in these things are really amazingly precise about looking at one and saying, oh, that was 307 BC or, you know, they have like a long lineage. So they're really common for dating. And in one of these ships we were exploring several years back now was uh, 120 meters deep, so fairly deep uh, shipwreck. And that's one of the the benefits there is not many people have had a chance to do any damage to it or take anything from Mm it. And we found a very strange kind of saucer-shaped feature, which I couldn't figure out. It was about a meter wide and I couldn't figure it out. And we had actually a submersible with us at the time. So this is a deep submersible that had archaeologists in it. 
So they would just come over by us and the divers are working on the bottom. And I picked this thing up and showed it to him. And the archaeologist is just like almost jumped out of the submersible, you know, he's just like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, you know, and I was just like, it's a really big plate, you know, <laughs> thought maybe it was for a buffet dinner yeah. or something like that. Uh, so he kept giving me this emphatic, you know, it's got to go to the surface, it's got to go to the surface. And then he kept signaling and I finally figured out he meant there was a base that I should also be looking right. for. Uh, so we found the base in both of those and then they ended up dating that to 3000 BC wow. and it was almost certainly was sacrificial for animals. Right. So they would like sacrifice small animals to the weather it's gods. It's buffet <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Amazing. Before we turn to your current role, are there any shipwrecks around the UAE? There are some, and this is would be a great passion of mine. It, mm. It's been a bit difficult to locate some of them. Mm. There are some more modern. There's even a sub and a merchant vessel off the coast of Fujairah, right. both of which are no longer allowed for diving because mm. of concerns over the oil platforms nearby. Mm. We were working to try to get access reestablished because they're really very, very cool wrecks and fun to explore. But there must be a range of ancient wrecks throughout mm. the region. I think there's a lot of sensitivities given you know different emirates and sure. different countries and just trying to make progress. And also, the other issue is a lot of those, almost all of those would have been wooden. And so the the ship itself is probably eroded, but the mm. cargo would be present. Interesting. Unless you're lucky and it was buried mm. deep enough below yeah. the sand. <laughs> that's the ultimate dream is to find like a ancient wooden yeah. wreck. Yeah. But people can go to deep dive Dubai for a sunken city, Yes, right? they can. <laughs> because can. I've seen this in videos, right? I've never done it. And I'm hopefully once I get very comfortable in water, I will come and do some bits of deep dive. So yes. So, deep diving. We'd love to have you. But tell us a little bit about deep dive Dubai, though. The thing that's hard to describe a little bit, and even the video and pictures don't quite do it justice, but the initial intent was to, it started out just what can we do to create a nice and interesting diving environment in Dubai? Because off the coast, the visibility isn't great. It gets better for experienced divers. It's not such a big deal, but newer divers, divers who are in training, free divers in training, people like that, it's not a great environment. So most people go to Fujairah mm -hmm. ultimately mm -hmm. for diving. And we wanted to create something unique in this special city that would allow people easier access to develop themselves so that they could easily dive from Dubai and or other parts of the world. So envisioning a pool-like environment that would allow that kind of activity, but we wanted to do something truly special by making it really unique to visit. There are several deep pools in the world, but they're really just deep pools, mm -hmm. yeah. meaning they have white marsite finish. So we wanted it to also be very fun to dive. So we built an entire sunken city inside the 16-meter deep, 15-million-liter facility allowing plenty of elbow room and space to explore and also interesting things to look at throughout. I obviously worked with you guys. <laughs> yeah. You know a bit about Around it. Around the yeah. launch of it, yeah. But it's funny because, you know, speaking about it, obviously the videos paints a really good picture of what you can expect. Because I've seen journalists, you know, when we were initially talking to them about, you know, looking in and just put their head in and then they put their head up. And for me personally, the experience of putting your head underwater mm -hmm. to look at the depth of it is truly awe-inspiring. You know, you don't really have those moments. It is a marvel. Mm -hmm. And diving in it, you know, I went to 18 meters. I did one of your discovery dives. It's fascinating. Mm -hmm. 
you know, it was just a fascinating experience because it goes obviously down to 60 meters. And, you know, when I mentioned kind of deep dive divided people, it's like, can you go to 60 meters? I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm like, are you certified to go to 60 meters? No, you can't. But what can people expect when they're in the pool, you know, for mm. someone like who doesn't have an open water certification, like me or Afshan through mm. to certified divers through to, you know, some of the deep divers. So a significant number of the people that visit us are first timers. They've never been in the water. They've never been diving before. About 40% of our visitors are these first time people. And we, in about a half an hour, we can get them comfortable and oriented with some basic skills. And then we slowly take them based totally on their comfort level. So there's no pressure for people to go deeper, quicker. Mm. You know, if people feel quite anxious, they can stay in a couple meters of water. And it's still an amazing experience to mm -hmm. look down. As you say, the water's crystal clear and you can see quite a lot even from just below the surface. And then we would slowly bring them down to a max depth at their first time of 12 meters where they can see a really nice full scale view of the facility. And then for our certified divers, they can go deeper relevant to their level of training. So scuba divers to 18 meters, advanced divers to 30 meters, and then progressive levels of technical training to go deeper. You have to be helium trained for as a breathing gas to go to 60 meters and a small share of our, our people go there. But there's a whole series of rooms fully furnished, as you can see some of the video yeah. online. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of neat things to explore. And then, of course, we have a wide range of training, everything from very beginning first-time people all the way through people who want to get trained and who want to get technically qualified as well for, for certified divers. And then as well for free divers. So we have training for free divers, for free diving instructors, and for people who just want to train. So almost everything you can think of underwater. And Deep Dive Dubai has some of the best instructors from all over the world, if I'm not mistaken. We have been very careful to pick some of the yeah. very best. We pick great people and then train them very rigorously. So most of, uh, really all now the guides have been trained significantly more than they will, and than the experience they'll be offering. So we're qualifying them as technical divers, even if they're really just guiding okay. people in shallow water. We really wanted to bring the next level for people. Just in the concept of the sunken city, it's kind of like post-apocalyptic. I love these kind of dystopian mm -hmm. <laughs> movies and stuff. So it's really fascinating. Were there any other concepts on the table, you know, at the kind of design conceptual phase? And what were they? Quite a few, really. We had about a dozen things that we were looking at. The Sunken City was always my favorite. Mm. Uh, as a diver, there's something really cool about yeah. diving in a kind of man-made space. And it sounds silly even when I say it to mm. me. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, just like a city that's flooded is yeah, yeah. just really cool. But we had coral reef themes, oil mm. rigs and wrecks and, you know, all sorts of variety of natural and semi-artificial kind of environment. But in the end you can do most of those things, right? So if we make a coral reef, well, you can dive a coral reef. Mm -hmm. And no matter how good we did it, it probably still wouldn't be as cool as some of the yeah. coral reefs you yeah. can visit. Whereas as a diver, even certified diver, I've only dove one sunken city in my life and I have more than 10,000 dives and I've been all over the world recovering all sorts of artifacts. Yeah. And only once in China did I get a chance to dive a true sunken city. So we thought, hey, let's do something that divers can't do. And really, even as a longtime technical diver, I have to honestly say that I enjoyed doing the dives and I still enjoy jumping in the water and leaping off from that shallow ramp and seeing mm -hmm. the, the facility just plunge down below me. It's, a, it's still a fun dive. And in the pool as well, there's two dry habitats, correct? Yeah. We have a lot of cool little secrets, but no, yeah. you, you gave that one away, so we'll go ahead <laughs> and talk about it. <laughs> yeah, we have, uh, we've kind of built two uh, diving bells, dry spaces, so to speak, mm -hmm. in the facility, one at 20 meters and one at six meters. And this just allows people to come up 
in a small dry chamber and communicate, talk to each other. You can also talk to the surface. We have cameras and audio to the surface so you can communicate. It's just fun in the middle of a dive to be able to pop up and have a chat, you know, (laughs) with your fellow teammate, which creates another interesting environment. Then there's big windows as well. So you can even look out into the, as the divers dive while you're floating. I've done that into the cafe. Yeah. (laughs) And the safety of land. The safety (laughs) of seen I've seen people dive. (laughs) You've watched it. And you have an event space as well, like. We do a conference area. We do a lot of team building, conferences, activities, special occasions, birthdays, all those sorts of things Wedding are quite yet? popular. Uh, <laughs> we've had a couple of proposals. Have so, you? In the yeah. water? In the water. It's not surprising, though. It would be yeah. so, like, It's a amazing, very unique right? place. It's an unforgettable place yeah, to propose a, for yeah. all of you out there looking for a yeah. neat place to propose. You know, nobody will Can't forget it. that. And we can play any kind of music you want, including, you know, uh, bridal music underwater if you want. <laughs> underwater uh, rave. Underwater oh, rave. So now the next step is a wedding actually i think a full wedding that's a, a really wedding. good idea yeah. we, can, we could build yeah. a little stage you in the middle get, and someone needs to be officiated yeah so if you're out there <laughs> listening and you wanted to do yeah. something truly remarkable exactly. and i think getting married underwater in the world's deepest pool yeah. would be the thing no make guess, the headlines for sure yes made the headlines but also through the past year we've seen a lot of celebrities, celebrities yeah. visit deep dive dubai <laughs> and we have a question we were wondering who is the best celebrity diver out there that's visited <laughs> Oh, I don't know. I could get in really hot water, can't I? I think saying the best one's not getting in hot water. If we asked about who the worst, worst one one's is. Are, yeah. That's a good point. That's yeah. a good point. I would say Will Smith so far. You mm-hmm. know, he he uh, really had a great time. He did actually two full-length uh, dives in, mm-hmm. in, in the facility, and we spent a good part of the afternoon. And is he a diving. regular now? He hasn't been lately. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> He's, I think, been preoccupied. Preoccupied, but, uh, yeah. But uh, I think he comes to Dubai still fairly regularly. Yeah. We'd love to have him back, of course, yeah. and uh, it was a pleasure to take him for a dive. We've had a number of, uh, most of whom I don't feel appropriate talking about okay. since they, yeah. they didn't That's... really give us permission. But yeah. you know, we get a lot of people who come by and are really fascinated uh, with the environment. Yeah. And many of them are hard to pry away. Just from here, I consider everything you do so like daring and fascinating. Obviously, at some point, I do have this goal of, learning how to swim by the end of this year and then maybe kind of heading to deep dive to do some initial dives to see how I go. We would love to see that. You know, I did just, I don't want to interrupt you too much, but I have to tell you that two of our initial staff members both came to us and neither could swim. Oh, okay. And now they're both very active divers. That's reassuring. But then I think there's uh, like with whatever I do or with whatever Dawn does, there's an element of grit involved, be it innate or be it learned. So what we'd like to ask you is that, what do you think is it innate for you or did you have to learn it along the way? The grit part or the diving part? The grit part. Well, we know what end, happened right? with the diving part. <laughs> you know, I think we just want to separate. The Most diving is really easy and relaxing and, and very much like a, a hobby kind of thing. So if you're not hardcore athlete, you know, diving can still easily be for you and you yeah. can have a fascinating time. I just think for me, there's a whole segment of diving that athletes miss and that people who are really active and just love challenge, there's a whole lot for people to do. The grid, I think, came naturally for me. I mean, I've always been attracted to difficult things. Uh, One of the things that attracted me about Deep Dive Dubai was it was difficult to do, to build, to realize. And athletics has always been interesting for me. I mean, I'm an Ironman ultra distance kind of personality and so you know for for me i think that was already kind of natural and i didn't i didn't struggle with that i found that part of the attraction okay and what's type two fun yeah (laughs) type two fun (laughs) you're like 
it's not really fun right now, but looking back. But if you're a type zero fun, we still have something yeah. for yeah. you, right? Diving <laughs> is still a great sport. So what's next for you in terms of exploration? Do you have anything on the cards? We have quite a lot of projects out there. The most the most certain one, well, I say certain, um, we have a expedition to Antarctica, which I've had to cancel three times now due to COVID, mm -hmm. uh, but it looks almost certain to occur this January. Amazing. So I'm excited about that. We have a number of cave projects going on later this year in Florida, which I'm excited about. And then next summer, we have a whole host of things. I'm trying to decide which of those to join because our communities around the royal world are organizing dozens of these different projects. Yeah. There's an ongoing series of projects in the Mediterranean, off the coast of Lipari, uh, off the coast of Tunisia. We have a bunch of stuff in Sicily. So you know, there's all kinds of stuff. I just have to figure out how much time. If there were more hours in the day. Yeah, I know. I know. Only. Only. I was like, I want to do this sport. I want to do that. I'm like, you don't have time. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm on a signing up for everything spree. <laughs> Are you? See, okay, perfect. To see how much I can do and how much I can achieve yeah. <laughs> before I have to call it a day. This is why I had to move out from skydiving. <laughs> I had a great time with it, but I realized if I'm going to keep doing it, I, you know, it requires practice. Yeah, and it's also the cause... opportunity cost from other things Exactly, as well. yeah. yeah. But I... I would love to get better at free diving. I tried that as well at Deep Dive <laughs> Dubai, and I'm very buoyant, apparently. Well, we have weight. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I can't get So down. we both have challenges we that do. we need to. But well, we have lead, so we can make you happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Natalia was a great instructor she is, there. Yeah, she's awesome. Yeah, and we'll, get, we'll definitely get her on the podcast. Yeah. Very talented and, and, a, and a great spirit and really good with uh, beginners as well. Yeah, no, she's fantastic. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been a true you. pleasure. Congratulations again to both thank of you. No, it's thank been you. Exciting to speak to you and your audience, and I uh, wish you the best of luck in the future. Yeah, Thanks thank so you much. so much. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, we ask that you please share it with family, teammates, friends, and even frenemies, or share via social media. Please also leave us a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Five stars only. And visit us on themetalset.com for more stories and resources. Thanks again for listening. Your support means the world to us. This is The Metal Set.